This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right. Today's question's a little bit bizarre, but I am guessing there are some royal watchers and fans of the royals out there who will be more than happy to weigh in on this. Has to do with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. So apparently they were treated to Nanaimo bars by the High Commissioner of Canada to the UK during a visit. This to say Thank you for their trip to Vancouver Island. So here's the question. Which BC treat would you serve up to the royals? Yes, that's right. Prince Harry and Meghan are going to pop by for tea. What treat do you give them? Do you serve up Nanaimo Bar? A white spot pirate pack? Why is that even on the list? Whale's Tales or Jappa Dog? That's a diverse list of treats for the offering. I guess you kind of have to... Look at your guests, see what they might like the most. So that's what we were asking you. What BC treat would you serve up to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle if they popped by? And of course, you would have all of these things handy, ready to give to them. Nanaimo bar, a white spot pirate pack. I'm even going to expand that one. Let's say anything from white spot. Whale's tails or Jappa dog. That's a fun one today. You can vote on Twitter at CKNW. I will retweet this as well at Jill Reports. You can also call the CKNW Buzz line at 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-BUZZ. That's 2899. You can leave your vote there. You can also be more specific if you would like when you call the Buzz line as to why you have chosen that treat. Nanaimo Bar. White Spot Pirate Pack, Whale's Tales, Jappa Dog. I don't even know which one I would pick out of that list. Probably the Pirate Pack. But then again, I don't know. Does that go with tea? Doesn't it depend what they're drinking too? Maybe I'm overthinking it. But that is today's hot question of the day. Vote on Twitter or on the Buzzline and we'll share some of those results. Well, all of the results a bit later on in the program. There is a case making its way through court in this province. And some of the details are gruesome to say the least. It is a murder case that originates in West Vancouver. It involves the murder of a West Van millionaire. And Li Zhao doesn't dispute the fact that he shot and killed Gang Yuan in 2015, then dragged the body into the garage of his house. That's where the body was dismembered. But what we've been hearing at the trial is more on what exactly happened that day. And joining me now to bring us up to speed and to let us know what we can expect today is Aaron MacArthur, who is a reporter with Global News. Aaron, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. No problem, Jill. So how did we get to this point? Or, or walk us through uh, a bit of what's happened at this trial. Yeah, gruesome, to say the least, is right. Um, so this, this goes back to 2015. Uh, Li Zhao and, and Gang Yuan lived on and off in a West Vancouver mansion. Uh, they're business partners, friends, and, and loosely related and there was a dispute about one of their business opportunities. Uh, Yuan was trying to ice Zhao out of a, a share in the business, and, and Zhao got upset about that, according to Zhao. I mean, this is all from his testimony in, in court. And then Yuan made some personal references to Zhao and his, his family, his daughter specifically, and that's what sparked a fight, according to Zhao's testimony. The two men... Um, uh, struggled in the home, uh, a hammer was involved, physical violence, and then it spilled out into the driveway, and, and Yuan ended up with the hammer in his hand. Zhao, fearing for his life, according to him, grabbed a, a small caliber rifle, and then two shots were fired, and then, as you say, he was, uh, Zhao ended up dragging the body into the garage, dismembering it, and then the next day was arrested and, and put, uh, and he's been in jail ever since, uh, awaiting trial on, on second-degree murder charges. It's a, it's a strange story. I mean, if, if you said this was an episode of, of Law and Order, I would believe you, but truth is, is stranger than fiction here. And what I found uh, difficult, too, in that what's come out in the testimony as well, is it's that moment where things clearly went 
incredibly wrong during this this fight, this altercation. But at that moment, and I think even at that point, uh, two of the women connected to the the men came home, uh, said, what have you done? We need to call an ambulance, which you would think would be the natural response from most people in that scenario. But it was at that point where he said, no, no, we'll deal with this. And that's where where things, as you just said, kind of uh, unraveled. That's when things happened in the garage. So... Yesterday in court, the judge the judge is reading out all a summary of the evidence, and and the last thing we heard yesterday was a, a psychiatric assessment of Mr. Zhao after the fact, and uh, there's some indication that there was he was in an emotional, or at least the defense is trying to paint a picture that he was in a in a a mental state that he lost control of all rational judgment. And, and that's really what's at, at stake here. As you say, Zhao's not d- disputing any of these a- allegations. He shot Gang Yuan in the driveway. He, he did the things that, that he's accused of doing. Now, he's been charged with second-degree murder and interference with a body. Defense is arguing that this was done in, in self-defense. And then the after after the fact was a, a mental break that uh, that they're hoping the judge doesn't put much much stock in and we will certainly find that out today when uh, when a sentence is passed and so we are expecting that today as far as the the testimony has wrapped up and we're now hearing from the judge because this wasn't a jury trial this is a judge alone trial judge alone uh, we were expecting this yesterday actually but the judge has to read the summary of evidence into the record and then it needs to be translated in real time to mr Zhao, who speaks very limited english so it takes quite some time um so we'll be back in court at eleven thirty, hoping things wrap up after lunch and so we'll know one way or another uh what's going to happen to to mr Zhao. i mean either a second degree murder charge or a manslaughter charge something of those along those lines is, is sure to come down today right and, and just to be clear even though the idea of, of a psychiatric assessment has been brought up but because in so many cases similar to this we hear uh, the defense bringing up not criminally responsible uh, due to uh, mental capacity at the time but that's not being argued here you know that was it was actually offered well offered it was brought up at, at the court yesterday that somebody had suggested to Zhao that he 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 try a, a not criminally responsible defense but he said from the beginning no that he didn't want to pretend to be mentally ill throughout this whole trial he's he's of sound mind now and and the courts have 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 ruled that that he is of sound mind to to um to fight this uh, this charge but certainly there was some mental break during this altercation and that's um and that's what the, the defense is hanging its its hat on here and is anyone in the courtroom are there family members or anybody what's the mood like in the courtroom itself it's very sparse mostly reporters a few people come and go but it uh, doesn't appear that uh, mr Zhao's wife is is in court or she wasn't yesterday anyway um not a lot of support for the man at, the, at this point he's been in custody since 2015 and it's uh Hard to know what uh, his family connections are here. All right. Well, Aaron, as you said, so 1130 today, uh, things get back going in the courtroom. We will wait for your reports. Thank you so much. No problem. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, as you likely heard in the news, V2V Vacations says it is stopping its passenger ferry service immediately. People who purchase tickets will be available, will be able to get a full refund. The company owned by Australia-based Riverside Marine Group launched V2V Vacations. And at the time when it was launched, offered it as a premium three and a half hour crossing between Vancouver and Victoria. In a statement issued by the company, General Manager Julian Wright says it would not be economically viable to continue operations this year. And Julian Wright joins us on the line now to talk about this a little bit more. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Jill. Was there one particular thing, sorry, one particular thing at this point that led you to believe that going forward in 2020 just wouldn't be viable? Uh, We had incredible um, financial growth last year and also wonderful uh, guest satisfaction scores. Uh, We did feel that we were on an okay path, but uh, it just simply wasn't enough of an improvement in financial revenues from last year. Um, from the year before to justify continued investment in the business um, from what the board has told me. So, yeah, that would that would be the number one reason. 
And looking back then, since it launched, were there growing pains or what do you think was the main reason it wasn't economically viable? Uh, I think every new business has growing pains uh, as you learn what the customer wants and, and how to deliver that in the best way possible. Uh, we had some ones of our own with, uh, you know, um, mechanical issues with the vessel in 2017. Uh, but we, we did a lot of work in trying to uh, regain the customer's confidence and trust, which we were able to do well and truly in, in the guest um, satisfaction, satisfaction surveys and TripAdvisor scores and all the things that we do to monitor what guests think of us. Uh, we definitely turned the tide on that, but um, uh, there's a lot of competing factors and there's a lot of pressures put on, on a new business. And unfortunately, um, uh, we just didn't get the returns that we needed in a short enough period of time. It takes a long time to establish a business and, um, yeah, we just... Ran out of time, I guess. Uh, when it first launched uh, in 2017, uh, the one-way tickets went from anywhere from $120 to $240. And, and I understand you were focusing probably more on, on tourists and, and the more luxury travel between the two cities. Was that a mistake, though, for focusing on tourists with higher prices rather than on people that live here and wanted to go between Vancouver and Victoria? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think you can still entice uh, the local commuter, traveller to uh, travel with us, um, but through promotions and things like that, we probably needed to do that a bit better um, and on a more consistent basis so that people could uh, learn about us. Um, you know, the local traveller has another, a huge number of other ways to travel between the mainland and Victoria. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think that the price point was the, you know, the head price point wasn't the main reason. I think we, we probably could have promoted that better and done nicer discounts and deals for our uh, local residents. But the people who did travel with us, um, even from Vancouver and Victoria, um, spoke very highly of the service. So uh, it was once, you know, once people actually took the plunge and tried, um, they were very satisfied and we, we, we were quite happy with the, the price point. You also have to get the um, return on the, the asset and the, the, the investments made. So at a lower price point, we, we couldn't get that with just one asset. Right. Uh, but when you say that the local commuter or local travel has a, a great number of ways, we don't really. I mean, there's BC ferries, you could fly or you could take a private boat. There's not a ton of ways to get between the mainland and Vancouver Island. Uh, but uh, there's still three options there. Yeah. All right. And, you're, uh, and, and, it just... and, and from, from my experience outside of Vancouver and Victoria, I know that BC ferries is quite inconvenient and we tried to bridge that by offering a convenient um, option um, but you know BC Ferries is a professional outfit can carry a lot of passengers um, with more crossings in a day um, so you know that, there's that to contend with. Uh, and is it one of the criticisms uh, I had read was that the the V2V started in Victoria when maybe it should have started the day off in Vancouver. What do you say to that criticism? Um, in twenty end of 2018, we, we changed back to um, leaving the day in Vancouver um, and returning back to Vancouver over night time. Uh, we did that in 2019 as well, which probably accounted for a lot of our growth in um, customers. Uh, so, yeah, we, we would have continued that way too. Uh, if or if, if the uh, future was different, we probably would have got a different vessel and another vessel that could have um, helped us go the other way with two vessels crossing. But uh, unfortunately, that wasn't to be. So, so yeah, I agree that um, potentially leaving out of Vancouver is the right way for our model to work. Right. Were the sailings ever sold out, uh, say, in the summertime, or, or did you ever have peak, peak times in the year where they were sold out and it was uh, profitable? Uh, we didn't have a sellout, no, but um, we had some busier times. Um, and, in fact, probably our more expensive option, um, Royal Class, was um, more utilised by guests than, than premium on occasion. So, but, yeah. All right. So I mentioned off the top, if anybody has purchased tickets for 2020, they can get refunds. How do people do that? They can either email us at uh, hello at v2vvacations.com 
one of our team members will um, issue a refund and contact the guest, or feel free to um, call us through on one eight five 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 four four six seven nine between nine and five uh, BC time, and we will happily um, look after the guests in issuing that refund. All right. And what's next then? What happens to the vessel at this point? The vessel will be docked in Victoria and the Riverside Marine Group will look for other opportunities on the BC coastline um, that fit the marine industry that we love and know very well. Um, And then with the vessel itself, uh, until an opportunity arises, it will remain in Victoria. All right. So you'd like to stay in BC or do you think there are opportunities on the BC coast? Absolutely. Yep. Many opportunities, uh, just a matter of when they might come up, and uh, we look forward to finding one that suits us and suits a customer that needs our expertise in, in the marine industry. All right. Well, we will look forward to seeing what happens next and to what is launched next from the company. Julian Wright, thank you so much for joining us, for being here today. Thanks so much. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today and looking out the window, it's a soggy one. It is gray, it is wet, and the rainfall warning continues for many parts of Metro Vancouver, other parts of the province. We have some cold weather on the way as well. So let's check in with Global's chief meteorologist here in BC, Mark Madriga. Hello to you. Well, hello there, Jill. Nice to be with you this morning. Yes, Happy New Year. I know it seems late to be saying Thank that, you. but I've not talked to you since 2020 <laughs> started, so there you go. Well, thanks, and same to you. Happy New Year. And it's uh, pretty active weather heading into this next few days. Boy, it's uh, just looking back uh, through December, we had 26 out of 31 days with rain, and we've had rain on each of the last 13 here, Jill. So mm-hmm. we're we're you know we're due for some drier weather, but I think a lot of us are kind of thinking, oh man, this is is this ever going to end? All this rain, uh, yeah. Three kind of highlights here that I want to get into, or lowlights maybe, and that is uh, the nasty weather today, the chance of snow in Metro Vancouver Friday morning, and then a pretty uh, vigorous blast of Arctic air. Why don't we start uh, with what's happening now, and that is yeah, more rain for the afternoon in Metro Vancouver. Heavy at times, especially closer to the mountains, but even downtown right now is getting hammered, and another 20 millimeters or so. The Fraser Valley will pick up another 20 to 30 millimeters. We'll have the rain taper quickly by dinner time, early evening in Vancouver. It'll take a little longer to taper in the Fraser Valley. And then tomorrow and Thursday look pretty slack for weather, not much. Maybe a shower or, a, or even a flurry mixed in at higher levels tomorrow and Thursday. In the uh, Kamloops, Kelowna area through the Thompson Okanagan, um, it looks like the heaviest snow is through now. It's tapering to a couple showers uh, through this afternoon and uh, then some snow showers coming back later tonight. But again, things settle down there the next couple of days. Now, part two is late Thursday night early Friday, the next system will roll into the south coast, and it should be cool enough in Metro Vancouver to have at least a mix of rain and snow for the Friday morning commute, especially a little higher above sea level, as is typical, and possible snowfall accumulations. Again, that's three days away almost, so that's I'll leave it at that for now. The threat of some snow Friday morning in Vancouver, and then rain in the afternoon Friday to probably wash it away. Uh, part three here is uh, the cold snap coming, and that will kick in to the BC interior steadily later this week and on the weekend. Much colder air rolling down from the north. It'll hit Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley probably Sunday. And again, that's a ways away, but heads up that Sunday and looks like all of next week will be much colder and even a threat of snow on the on the, the Sunday time frame, but we'll, we'll keep that in the back of our mind for now. It looks mostly dry next week, but much colder, the coldest air of the season by far, Jill. So that's the spiel, the <laughs> overall next week or so in, in, the, uh, in the weather book, and it's pretty active. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting that you're saying, too, that next week is going to be the, the coldest or the colder temperatures, because I noticed earlier today, Jordan Armstrong, reporter at Global, uh, tweeted out that it's been exactly three years since, remember, the salt wars, the people oh, fighting yes. over the pile of salt and everything was right. chaos. It's been three years right. since that happened. It- 
It's been three already, man. Yeah. I thought it was two, but it's three <laughs> now. And yeah, it's typically our coldest time of the year, sort of mid mid to late January. But last year it was February that was the coldest on record. That was our really bitterly cold stretch and a lot of snow last February. So uh, yeah, we're we're going to get a, a good shot of cold air. I, I doubt if that will be, uh, well, it's going to last a while, but I mean, we still have all of February and early March and it's been pretty slack for cold air so far this season. So we are due definitely and, and we're going to head into that colder, uh, colder pattern. And yeah, again, that could be accompanied with some snow at times, especially later in the weekend and that Friday morning time frame. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's coming. It's coming. So bundle up, Jill. I want to, want to remind everybody that, uh, yeah, that's going to be a tough, tough, uh, stretch for people outdoors and, and of course the homeless. So we'll be focusing on that too. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned this as well, or Thompson Okanagan, because uh, that's one of the, the major routes. We've already seen a lot of snow on the Coquihalla and the highways. Sounds like that could be an issue again. Yeah, it should be. Uh, again, Friday will be probably very snowy up on the mountain passes with that next system. The rest of today and tonight, uh, Coquihalla looks like it's turning over to a slushy mix of rain and snow now, mostly rain this afternoon as the temperature rises above freezing. But later tonight on the Coquihalla, that snow level will come down, so some heavy snow showers are possible again. But yeah, overall, some pretty wintry weather up there and other mountain passes for the next, uh, well, long time, really. And They'll, of course, be in that cold snap, too, on those passes uh, Sunday onward, Jill. All right. The good news, though, for people looking outside right now in Metro Vancouver and seeing the rain just pounding down, that is going to ease off. That's right. Yeah, right. Let's say late afternoon or dinner time, uh, early this evening, we should be down to just a couple showers and not much precipitation at all tomorrow and Thursday and then kicks in again early Friday. All right, Mark. Thank you so much for keeping us up to date. You bet, Jill. I'm sure uh, we'll be chatting a lot over the next week or so. There's lots going on. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Thanks for being with us. Well, this is the first time the World Health Organization has recognized the nursing profession by marking 2020 the year of the nurse and midwife. It's also the 200th anniversary of the birth of Florence Nightingale, one of the founders of modern nursing. So we thought it would be a good idea to take a look at nursing in this province. And we are joined by BC Nurses Union President Christine Sorensen. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Oh, good morning. Thank you very much for uh, wanting to hear about nurses. Well, I th- we thought it was it was interesting that the World Health Organization has done this, uh, even if, if it's uh, a title and, and doesn't actually mean changes or doesn't uh, do anything other than raise uh, um, awareness. But good to look at nursing in BC because there has been a history of nursing shortages. Certainly there's been the campaign bringing awareness about uh, the abuse that nurses face on the job day to day. What would you say is kind of the number one thing or the number one challenge nurses are looking at right now? Well, certainly I think the number one challenge is challenge that nurses in this province are facing is workload, uh, which is the increasing demands not only of patients and patient care, the types of care, the acuity and complexity of the patients that we're now seeing into the system, um, coupled with uh, the reduction in actually the amount of services that we have available to be able to deliver care for the patients. Uh, So not only do we have uh, difficulties with community health, so we can't keep people in their homes or care for them in their homes adequately. Uh, We don't have enough long-term care spaces for the people that seem to need them. Many of them are unfortunately uh, being cared for in acute care system, uh, which is not really the best place for people who need long-term care. And then our and then our acute care services are really struggling uh, with overcapacity issues because we have people who are inappropriately in the hospital who really need placement in community or long-term care. And then those who are acutely ill uh, waiting for beds in hospital or waiting for care because there just isn't space. Uh, and so what the nurses are, I think, are really struggling with is, is this workload, this overcapacity in our healthcare system, and the moral distress that it's placing on the nurses who know that they cannot deliver the quality of care uh, that these patients deserve in BC. And does it vary from where we are in the province in that I would imagine that nurses working at, say, VGH or St. Paul's would have a different scenario than nurses working at the Kamloops Hospital? 
Well, interestingly enough, I would beg to differ. I think the stress level for the nurses is pretty much the same across the province because I, I speak to nurses from all over BC. Uh, and what I hear, and while their patient population may be different or the unit that they work in may not be a, a ICU, it may be a medical unit versus a psychiatry unit, uh, the pressures that they're facing are the same. Uh, a lot of uh, patients who are in facility or in placement, inappropriate placement, they don't, they're lacking the services they need. The nurses are working copious amounts of overtime or they're working short, uh, trying to meet patient needs. Uh, and then the nurses are, are really struggling. Um, you know, and we, unfortunately, what I'm seeing is nurses either self-managing by stepping out of the system um, or refusing to take all of the amounts of overtime that are being offered uh, or, or going off on short-term disability to deal with their own mental health issues uh, and moral distress. And unfortunately, some of them are ending up with PTSD um, because of the, uh, the trauma that they're experiencing. Uh, how much does the system really depend on overtime? Oh, well, that's a, that's a really difficult situation and which we've seen grow and grow and grow over the years. Uh, two years ago, it was at about $121 million of overtime in this province. But last year alone, uh, this province or taxpayers paid $162 million in overtime for nurses. And, and while, you know, we anticipate that some overtime in a system is acceptable, uh, that equates to nearly 2.2 million hours of nursing time. So the number of regular positions that could be created for that is, is an incredible. Uh, and what it really is telling me is that nurses are not only working their regular shifts, but they're working almost another whole set as a regular staff person, trying to meet the needs of the system and the patient care needs. So often patient nurses are going into work tired, um, unwell, because they know if they call in sick, there'll be nobody to replace them, and they don't want to leave their colleagues short. Uh, and so I think the amount of overtime that's being used in the system is unhealthy. Uh, and, and what do you think the root of that is? As you mentioned, some nurses are going on short-term disability or, and are, are going that route. Is it the, the number of nurses in the system now isn't enough, or is it also that we are not training enough nurses to come into the system? Well, you know, we look at the government's own data, and, you know, we know that this province has the lowest number of nurses per capita. Uh, we also graduate uh, not enough nurses to replace what we'll need to have in the system. Uh, the government's own data from the BC Labour Market Outlook uh, in 2018 has predicted that BC will need 25,000, so that's 25,000 more nurses on top of what we currently have uh, by 2030. Uh, that's obviously to address the increasing population, which they also say is going to go up by 1.3 million. Uh, and yet 40% of us, I'm a 30-year nurse, 40% of us can retire in the next 10 years. And so we have a large number of nurses who are eligible for retirement. We have an enormous need for more nurses in the system just to meet the current demands of what we're anticipating. We're already short-staffed because we have the least number of nurses per capita, and we're not graduating enough nurses. Uh, to maybe around 2,000 nurses in all the different disciplines across BC, and many of those nurses don't actually go into nursing. They graduate, they get casual positions, they can't get regular work, they can't find an area where it's safe for them to work, both physically and mentally, and there are other jobs that they can do with a great education of being a nurse, and so they'll leave nursing, and that's very concerning for me. It seems like one. Of, it seems like a problem. I mean, I remember doing stories about this 15, 20 years ago, and it was many of the same issues and the same problems, the same forecast of these vacancies that needed to be filled. And you would think, if that was the case, somebody graduating, you wouldn't get casual work. You would Im immediately be offered a full time job if the, the work is there. So, what do you think needs to be done? What What's one thing that could be done to fix that? Well, we have been calling on the government uh, to develop a, a provincial health human resource plan, uh, a very specific plan on how they will provide enough seats in nursing schools uh, to meet their own predicted needs uh, and how they will work with the health authorities to ensure that staffing levels are appropriate so that nurses can provide safe patient care in this province and work in safe environments. They need to look at retention of our nurses as well as recruitment and that is something that BCNU has been very actively pursuing uh, with the employers, uh, looking at creative ways to help retain enough nurses in our healthcare system uh, as well as looking at how we can recruit more. 
Can nurses come here from other countries and work in nursing, or do they have to start from scratch? Well, nurses can come from other countries. They do need to um, meet the criteria that is set by the regulators, so the College for Nurses in British Columbia, and that's important so that the standard of care is the same. Uh, and so people have different standards of education around the, the world. Uh, the scary part for us, though, is that we're in a worldwide nursing shortage, and part of the focus on from the World Health Organization is acknowledging that the world is going to need 7.3 million more nurses in the next 10 years. So every country is facing a significant shortage. Uh, we are all in that same boat of needing more nurses, focusing on nursing as a profession of choice, uh, a pr- profession of challenge and excitement too, but certainly a profession of choice, and that needs to have the investments made into it by provincial and federal governments so that we can recruit and retain the nurses we need. All right. We will leave it there. Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And in this year of the nurse, I'd like to commend all the nurses who work in healthcare. And Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, the head of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association has written a letter to Vancouver City Councillors as well as the Park Board asking that action be taken to find housing for those living in Oppenheimer Park. That's one of many things in this letter. It says that businesses in the area are no longer in a position to safely support staff and customers. And Theodora Lamb is the executive director of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association and she is in studio with me now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having us, Jill. Uh, First off, what else is in the letter or what drove you to write the letter at this point? Uh, At the Strathcona Business Improvement Association, we serve over 800 business members operating across 44 city square blocks. Uh, That's in East Vancouver and the downtown east side. And so uh, a lot of our businesses surround... Oppenheimer Park. And we've been tracking activity in the park uh, largely over the last year. Last summer, we did a survey with our members to gauge their feelings, their perceptions of safety, what their concerns were around the park. And we released uh, those results in a report and uh, promised, committed to follow up with our members and just to track activity uh, and support that the city and parks board were offering. Um, In early December, we heard that the Parks Board had conditionally accepted the terms of a condition, but based on a few factors and a few things moving forward, one of which was a third-party assessor being appointed to um, help uh, the, I guess, the decampment uh, process proceed in a human-centric way. We haven't heard anything about that since. That was early December and over the holidays and into the new year. You know, the concerns of our members were growing, growing, growing. These businesses have operated there for many, many years, in some cases, decades. They're not new to the conditions and the circumstances in which they're operating. But after a few tragic events over the last few weeks, we just felt like we hit this tipping point. And what we weren't seeing or hearing was any sort of response from the city, from Parks Board, and from our elected officials. So it was time to raise the alarm on this. And what response have you had from either Park Board or the city? So we've sent the letter out to the mayor, uh, to the city manager's office, to council and to um, Parks Board commissioners. We've heard from a few individual councillors saying, we hear you, um, we're on it. Uh, this is on our radar as well. Um, Councillor P. Fry, Councillor Jean Swanson. Uh, we have yet to have a conversation with the Parks Board um, uh, commissioner chair, uh, Chair Dumont. Uh, although uh, I can say we've been tracking his comments in the media He has some really thoughtful things to say. Yes, this is complex um, work. It shouldn't move too quickly, not faster than it needs to make sure that the people in the park are cared for. Uh, I think our concern is there's been an absence of any sort of comment, even in the wake of some of these tragic events. And I think the businesses have a right to know what's about to happen next. They have been operating there for decades and they will continue to operate and serve this community. Uh, The letter talks as well about the Strathcona, the association's safety team. This is a team that operates throughout Strathcona. What are they finding around Oppenheimer? So we have a two-person team that is funded by our members, um, and they monitor seven sub-districts across these 44 city square blocks, seven days a week, eight hours a day. we will not let this team walk through the park anymore. We do take our cues from the VPD as well. We work closely with our community policing center. Um, and as of uh, uh, recent weeks, we've had to pull them from the perimeter of the park as well. Um, that's for reasons anywhere from signage in the park um, directed at uh, VPD and anyone in uniform to just their sense of safety. And these are these folks are trained, right? They're, they're trained to be in difficult situations and to keep cool and 
and and really entrust a sense of safety for the community. And um, we're not feeling that right now, so we've had to pull them out from the area. And that's that's at a loss to those businesses who are operating there. Now, if a business member calls us, we will still respond to that call, but we won't walk through or around the park anymore, not uh, until things change. Right. And that, But that's more of a precaution then. It's not as though there's been an attack or a specific incident focused on someone? No, we haven't had any specific attacks on our safety team, but every day um, they encounter comments, they encounter behavior uh, uh, directed at them, uh, and they know how to manage that. They know how to work through that. Um, Their primary concern is supporting the people they encounter and supporting our members who need their help. Has business dropped as far as the the revenues that businesses around the park are taking in? When we did our survey last summer, we um, heard a lot of anecdotal um, uh, commentary from our members how uh, they were suffering, their business was suffering as a result of park activity. We had one business member say that they had to shut their doors. Now, I want to be clear, this isn't necessarily a park issue. You know, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of challenges happening in East Vancouver and the downtown east side. And so businesses that aren't even around the park are struggling with all kinds of challenges that those businesses around the park face as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're seeing it uh, district-wide right across Strathcona, challenges these businesses are facing because of our homeless issue, because of our lack of housing issue, and because um, there just aren't enough supports and services to meet every single individual's need who are living and working down there. And that's an excellent point in that we focus a lot on what's happening in Oppenheimer, but you only need to go a block in any direction. And there are problems there too. There are people living on the streets, there are people in tents, and that's got to be an issue for exactly that. The business is not just those that face the park, but in the whole area. I think I think what's happening right now um, is uh, indicative of a bigger issue. It it is about how we treat um, each and every single citizen um, and how we approach housing. How this has not been elevated, our housing issue, to a higher level of crisis is beyond me. And we've heard that from some of our city councillors. Can you please send this to different levels of government, uh, provincial and federal? And I will do that. But I'm also a nonprofit leader (laughs) who expects my elected officials who are in a position of power and privilege and who can apply the most pressure to sound the alarms on this. And I know we talk about this all the time. I I don't want to put down the work that each and every individual in our city is putting into this issue. Everyone is tired. I know that. And, And the work must continue. Right. And you're not saying, just to be clear, if people are hearing this, you're not saying kick everyone out, we want the park back. You're saying find solutions because this is not working for anybody, it seems, in the neighborhood. Yes, I'm saying that, and I have to be honest, it feels it, it, there's tension in me to say that, and this is the reason we have members who are um, serving community in and around the park who have been in these conditions for a lot longer, Jill, than we've been talking about them mm-hmm. today, this week, and this year. So um, it's hard and it pains me not to see their needs and their voices uh, put first, um, their concerns met immediately. Uh, and I can also appreciate that it takes time to solve these really complex issues. And absolutely, at the end of the day, we have to prioritize safety. And that includes the safety of the people in the park, as well as those who are operating businesses around it. So what do you do next? You've written the letter. What next? Well, um, I think uh, certainly the Strathcona BIA can't um, back down now. I think we went a little quiet, frankly, uh, mm-hmm. in between uh, the uh, the publication of our report last summer and um, sort of action and, and um, comment from the city and from Parks Board in early December. I, I'm sorry to say that I think... I believe it took our letter to get any kind of response from folks on what's happening next. So until we have some sort of response, until that third party assessor is named, which I'm hoping will be this week, Mm -hmm. and until there's an action plan and a timeline in place, we have to keep raising this with you, with the media, with our members, and with our elected officials. All right. Well, thank you for coming in today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Well, there has been a ruling from the BC Court of Appeal, and it deals with officers with the Vancouver Police Department and their cooperation or lack of cooperation operation with an investigation into a shooting death. It was a high-profile shooting death. It took place outside of a Canadian tire store in Vancouver. One man was killed. And if you remember the coverage of this shooting, there was a lot of video taken from people nearby on their phones and a lot of witness accounts. Well, the Independent Investigations Office was called in to investigate because it was a police-involved shooting. However, there were some issues when officers were asked to appear for compulsory interviews 
interviews and for officers to give their side of the story. Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this is Simon Little. He is a Global BC online reporter and has been writing about this. Simon, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, No problem, Jill. Uh, What are some of the, the points of the case as far as what the court was looking at? Yeah, okay. Uh, so, I mean, it's important to, to specify at the beginning that this case all surrounded what are called witness officers versus subject officers. So the subject officers are the officers who are being looked at uh, for their potential role in the death, whereas the witness officers were ones who were present and uh, but not being investigated. Uh, so in this case, the issue was the witness officers uh, did not want to go and be interviewed by the IIO uh, until they had the opportunity to review certain materials. So that included... Um, uh, computerized dispatch reports from the day of the incident, um, audio recordings or transcripts uh, of from the scene or radio, uh, and uh, video recordings as well. Uh, and essentially, the officers were basically saying, "Look, we want this to be. We want to give the most truthful account of the uh, incident, uh, and we're worried that uh, if we misrepresent the way things happened because we remember incorrectly, uh, we could be, you know, um, targeted for that or or said to have been trying to cover for somebody or something like that." Oh. So, oh, go ahead. Well, I was saying it's it's I get what what they're saying, but at the the flip mm-hmm. side of that, isn't the whole point of getting the witness officer accounts is the IIO, the investigating officers, they want to know what people remember seeing and hearing. They don't want them to be perhaps repeating what they saw in footage. Certainly, and, and that is the uh, argument that the IIO made, uh, and that the courts uh, in the end agreed with. Uh, they basically. Uh, the IIO took the Vancouver police officers in question to court over this, um, arguing, look, you can't decide the terms on which you're going to be interviewed. Uh, that's our power. Uh, it did go to the BC Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of the IIO uh, last year, or I guess two years ago now. Uh, and uh, in following that, the officers actually did go be interviewed, uh, and um, the case was closed. Nobody was found to be at fault. But um, the officers and their their union representatives uh, appealed the ruling on the grounds of um, sort of the wider grounds of the order that the judge had made, which was that the IIO has the power to compel officers to uh, witness officers to be interviewed uh, on its own terms. uh, And that includes whether their counsel or their union representative is there uh, and what materials they can look at ahead of time uh, and the scheduling of those interviews. That's all in the hands of the IIO. So they, the the Supreme Court judge made that order. Uh, The officers appealed that to the top court. And now the top court has said, uh, no, we're sorry, but we're siding with the Supreme Court. Uh, these, all these decisions are in the hands of the IIO. Right. So I guess, I mean, they could, I suppose, try and take it to the Supreme Court of Canada, but it's unclear at this point, I would imagine, if that's even something they're thinking about. Actually, yeah, we did just get uh, correspondence back from the um, uh, representative for the officers who said they don't plan to appeal this up to the Supreme Court of Canada. So this is basically as far as this will go, it looks like. Uh, They basically said they're disappointed in the ruling, but uh, they did pick out their silver lining from the ruling uh, from their side anyway, which said that, uh, you know, uh, in this case, uh, there was nothing, um, you know, uh, capricious or uh, overbearing about what the IIO was demanding. But if there was a case in which the IIO was being unreasonable in its demands, the officers may have uh, some grounds on which to complain. So, you know, in a cer- if we see these two sides come to loggerheads again at some point, uh, and the officers in question feel like they have an argument being to make that the IO was being unreasonable in what it was demanding, uh, it is possible that uh, we could see this relitigated. Uh, absolutely, because this, while this case is one that went through the courts, there have been other examples of the two groups uh, maybe not seeing eye to eye when it comes to what role they're playing in these investigations. Yeah, well, and I mean, there was another case that was actually quite similar to this one, uh, another police-involved death that also involving the Vancouver police, um, the case of Miles Gray. Uh, and uh, that case is actually, uh, I be- my understanding is that a report has been fo- forwarded to Crown Council for consideration of charges, no charges uh, at this point. But um, the family of, of Miles Gray has uh, sort of uh, held up that, uh, you know, the unwillingness of officers in that case to uh, be interviewed has also delayed the whole process. It's been, I think, five years at least since um, the Miles died. Uh, and uh, we're still we're still at the point of pre-charge approval. So uh, the argument there from that family would be that, uh, you know, it, if the officers are not being quick to be interviewed, it can slow down the entire process. 
which I suppose really doesn't help anybody. And you mentioned the family of Miles Gray, uh, and they've talked about this in the past as well. They want answers, uh, and I think would certainly like to see this move forward. Yeah, and I mean, you'd think from all sides, everybody would want to see these cases conclose, uh, concluded quickly. Whether you're an officer who is, um, you know, being looked at by the IIO, whether you are, um, you know, potentially uh, culpable for an offense or not, uh, or whether you're somebody who has a connection to one of these cases as a family member, friend, or victim, uh, from everybody's point of view, it seems like it would be the best to get the uh, investigations wrapped up in sort of a prompt way uh, so everybody can go on with their lives. And uh, just to recap, then, this case, this particular case that we're talking about uh, that deals with the shooting outside the Canadian Tire, so at least through the courts, uh, we're done with the court challenges and the court part of this in that this final ruling uh, from the BC Court of Appeal, that's the ruling that's going to stick. Yeah, and it does uh, reinforce that lower court ruling that basically says, you know, these interviews are done on the IIO's terms, and that is a, 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 a basically a declaration from the courts that stands. All right, Simon Little, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, if you're on social media, if you're looking at federal politics, you probably have run across a tweet or a story about Justin Trudeau sporting a beard. And yes, your first response might have been, why is that news? Why are we talking about this? Who cares? Others weighing in on it, saying he looks more distinguished. Maybe he grew the beard to look more distinguished. Who knows? Maybe he just went on vacation, didn't shave while on vacation, and decided to stay with it. But it got us thinking about beard culture and how it has changed over the years. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Christopher Schneider, a sociology professor at Brandon University, formerly of UBC. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, What do you think about the fact, are we making too much of this or, or is it something worth talking about that our prime minister has come back from vacation sporting a beard? I think it's an interesting question. I think, uh, Probably a bit much is being made of it, given that it's just his personal preference to have facial hair. And uh, given the other sort of things that are happening in the world right now and the media coverage in relation to, say, the, you know, the speculation about World War III and Australia on fire, uh, I think one of the reasons why perhaps we can surmise media have picked up on this story is the other stories are, are very serious. We're talking like global catastrophe, end of world scenarios. Whether or not that's actually going to happen is another thing. Uh, this particular story is it's fluff, it's fun, and it's relatively inconsequential. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's getting a lot more coverage uh, at the moment. Absolutely. I tend to agree. And we've, we've talked about all of those other stories and certainly are, are keeping watch on them. But sometimes you need a break. You need to kind of look at other things that are going on. Uh, you have written and talked about beard culture. So has there been a time when beards were completely out and weren't popular at all? That's a fascinating question. And the short answer is kind of yes. Um, across all societies, all cultures, and all centuries, to wear a beard or not to wear a beard announces what sort of man one is. So having a beard is a type of status. In the research literature, there are four different beard periods, if we want to call it that. The shaving norm uh, is initially attributed to Alexander the Great, who instructed his army to shave and to be clean-shaven in his image. And also it's been speculated in relation to, to warfare. When you have long beards and you're fighting, it's something else to grab onto, and it's dangerous for troops and warriors. Uh, and then this shifts from the, the second century to the Emperor Hadrian, who was a Roman leader. Uh, the Middle Ages, kings and knights bring back beards. Um, also at the Renaissance period in the 1500s. We're currently, in the, the research literature says, we're in the fourth beard period, which starts in the late 19th century. And the people who wear a beard are those typically who are in uh, opposition or expressing a type of opposition to normative shaving culture. <laughs> hmm. And do you think those who sport beards are actually are thinking about that on any level? I think the research literature does suggest that. It indicates basically that uh, men who wear beards are indicating symbolically to the world that they're beholden to none other than themselves because to not wear a beard and be clean-shaven, that's the cultural norm. 
often this norm is upheld in different institutions, for example, uh, politics. I mean, that's why we're having this very conversation right now. Uh, most politicians, aside for, from religious reasons, do not wear beards. So this is not normal, what Justin Trudeau is doing by sporting some facial hair, which is why we're talking about it. And uh, it's supposed to sort of convey a type of uh, professional and personal freedom, a type of individual autonomy. And while we can only speculate what the prime minister is thinking here and why he has a beard, in the research literature, that's what has been discussed symbolically uh, when a man wears a beard, that he is sort of expressing his own individual freedom. And indeed, I think Trudeau is doing that in the context of the political climate where, again, most men outside of religious reasons do not wear beards. Hmm, interesting. And what about just just as a conversation piece? I mean, do, do beards, is there more of a history and more of a symbolism with beards compared to, say, the man bun? I think absolutely, yes. So men have had long hair on and off again over the centuries. Uh, with beards, though, I think we could point, like we can at least look back into the, the 19th century in the most sort of recent beard period, if we want to call it that, and look at the type of men who wore beards. They were generally considered outcast or rebels. So we have motorcycle gangs, tattoo artists, musicians, uh, other artists, and people who sort of live by their own rule, as it were. Uh, with the man bun, historically, we don't find that same sort of trend as men having man buns or long hair living by their own rules. Long hair has meant different things in different cultures, and, and men have had long hair. So I think, I think the beard is discernibly different. Right. But how does Santa fit into all of this? Santa is probably, uh, aside from Jesus, one of the most recognized bearded men worldwide. And uh, there's been a little bit written on Santa um, as far as sort of Santa being his own person, his own man, right? There's only a Santa. And so Santa has a beard and this distinguishes him from every other person uh, who might be <laughs> coming down your chimney with presents, for example. Um, that's not a good idea if that's unsolicited, of course, but uh, it's sort of taken up a life of its own. And I think that it's become more of an iconic image than anything else in relation to Santa. Um, and getting back to uh, to the prime minister, which is what kind of sparked all of this. Uh, and like you said, unless outside of for religious reasons, it's rare to see uh, leaders sporting beards. Do you think that will lead to pressure to for Justin Trudeau to shave the beard off? I think so. I don't think we're going to see it get much longer. We can predict that. We've seen versions of this in other areas of pop culture. Uh, for example, Stephen Colbert on Late Night on Channel 2. Uh, he was off for a while and came back with a very small beard, facial hair, similar to Justin Trudeau, um, and sort of talked about it on TV, and, and it quickly came off. I don't think it's going to get much longer because facial hair still is, I think, very much associated with sort of an outcast or rebel type of image. And the longer it gets, that he, he'll be more criticized for looking like, quote, a drug dealer or, quote, a thug. And this has been uh, levied, these accusations at him, in earlier periods of his career when he had different versions of facial hair when he was up and coming. But to be a, a, to the PM and sort of the, the head of the country, to wear a beard, I think, is going to attract probably more negative attention for Mr. Trudeau than it would positive the longer it gets. So I think it's going to come off and, and probably will come off fairly quickly. All right. Uh, I forgot about that, too, when you mentioned uh, Stephen Colbert. I think Alex Trebek had a beard for a short time as well, and the Internet went crazy when he came onto the Jeopardy stage with it. Yes, exactly. And we saw David Letterman when he left Channel 2. He grew a giant beard up because he could. That's one of the reasons why men do it, simply because they can and not being beholden to anyone else. <laughs> All right. Well, fascinating research and a look at the history of the beard. Uh, Christopher Schneider, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.